Welcome to Making Waves, a show about sound art, produced by New Adventures in Sound Art. Today's episode features discussions with visual artist Julia White and singer-composer-video artist Laurel McDonald. Both artists are from NASA's Soundplay Festival. Laurel McDonald's artistic development began in both visual arts and music, But after establishing herself as a vocalist and composer first, she then later began creating video works that combined her abstract imagery with a rhythmically complex and tuneful vocal music. My conversation with her focuses on her latest audiovisual piece called I Eat the Stars, which explores the poetry of astronomer Rebecca Elson. It'll be performed online on November 6th. But to begin the show, I spoke with Julia White. She's a visual artist who uses sound recordings of creeks and other small waterways in her exhibition at NASA called Water Shadows. The subject of water weaves through different aspects of this work, which is also informed by her practice in deep listening. Here's my conversation with Julia White. A good place to begin, perhaps, is uh, I was maybe for listeners that uh, won't be able to see your exhibition or have not have seen Water Shadows in the past. Um, maybe if you could take us through what it what it looks like, what it consists of, you know, just a kind of a walk through in our imagination of what one would see if you were there at the gallery. Okay, thank you. Yes, so Water Shadows is an installation of sound sculptures, as you know, and they're actually, they're woven out of bicycle inner tubes that were discarded, ready for the landfill, so it makes for good art supplies that are free, and it diverts them from the landfill, and it's this beautiful black uh, rubber that is very weavable when you cut it into strips, so I weld these structures that looked They look a bit like water temples. I say water temples now. I'll tell you more why they're called water temples later. But they look more like temples uh, that I call water temples. And they are, um, as I said, steel rods that I welded together that are, you know, thin. And so they can bend and some parts grow into tree-like forms that are wrapped in the rubber. Um, so they're almost like basketry in a way, but it's this freeform weaving that I employ. Um, so they have an architectural feel, but they also feel like they're made out of roots and vines and natural materials, which are also somewhat woven into as well. Uh, some are on platforms that are painted white with uh, the, the black rubber dripping down like water over the platforms. And inside the sculptures or around them, underneath the waves of black rubber that pools on the ground, um, I have um, Arduinos and uh, microcontrollers that contain the field recordings of water from my community. So it's not just the water, it's also the sounds of nature, the sounds of planes going by. There are a lot more planes in the recordings earlier. So you get this whole feel. You, you walk through this temple complex um, with these black temple forms that are emanating sound. I'm not sure if that gives the best image, but hopefully you can all picture that. It's, it'll be perfect. 
And these temple structures, can you tell me a bit more about uh, why you call them temples? Yes. So I often work with temple type structures because I'm fascinated by, um, well, trees to me are like temples. Um, so maybe I won't use the word temple to start. Uh, but the reason these became specifically um, water temples was because of ice crystals that formed on the studio window. So what happened was I was starting a new body of work and I never know what the new body of work is going to be. So it's a process of listening inwardly, actually. Uh, so I do a lot of listening inwardly. I let images form. And I started to do drawings that, as I said, look like temples, which often my drawings do. Um, uh, but my own version of what that is, they're very personal. And I had it on the wall next to this window. And in the deep silence of winter, ice crystals formed on the studio window that looked very much like my drawings. And they looked like temples again. Um, you know, they're not religious temples. Um, you could call them huts, I guess, or sacred spaces uh, that have an inside. So they're hollow um, is what it looked like to me uh, with vines and intertwining networks and roots and things all growing out of them, except the image on the window was made out of ice crystals and the image on my wall that looked much like it was drawn, if that makes sense. <laughs> it's hard to explain in words, but I'm hoping you can understand. Yeah. So in a sense, the natural occurrence reinforced where, where your imagination was going. Exactly. Yes. It, it, was, like, it was like it flowed from one to the other and it made me realize there's something here and I need to listen to it and pay attention. So it added to it for sure. And that, that word water temple became very clear that this was about water and that water was speaking to me, knocking on the window to be given a voice. Mm -hmm. Literally. <laughs> yeah, literally. I mean, it was amazing. So is that where giving it a voice, is that where the sound aspect for the work came in? Did that come into your mind at that point, or was it you were still working on the uh, visual metaphors? Well, it's a good, it's a very good question, and it's actually the very truth of the matter is um, the sound aspect has been brewing since I was about 18 years old, and this is actually the first um, sound sculpture installation that I've made uh, with this, because when I was 18, I was in Paris and I actually saw my first sound art installation. It happened to be Salvador Dali. And I was in an old church and there were all these amazing sculptures of, of Salvador Dali's on these platforms. And as you walked through the space, they started to emanate sound. And I had never come across anything like this before. Um, it was it was just amazing. I'd hear whispers, and, and I had no idea where it was coming from, and it really sparked a desire in me to one day make sculptures that emanated sound and that created an experience, uh, a certain tone or a feeling. That's really what I was getting at. So I'd always had that inside. It was brewing. 
And then when this came together, uh, the window experience with the water knocking on the window, and then the sculptures that were just germinating, I realized this was the moment it was coming together. By incorporating sound into the experience of seeing the sculpture, it kind of gives more agency to the context around the sculptures, as opposed to the sculptures being typically, uh, in a way, devout of context that, that they could be placed in any properly lit room or something in the right environmental conditions, which are supposed to be as neutral as possible. Um, but in this case, the context is adding uh, meaning to the work. Mm-hmm. Um, is uh, is that how you see it, or or does the sound serve a different purpose? For me, it's as I was saying earlier, it's about conjuring or inviting an experience, a, a moment of communion where where it feels like you're you're not only listening to the wild currents within the world, so the nature as it flows through the form of water, uh, but it also provides a a context, a moment to connect with the wild currents within. And that's very much a theme in my work. So so bringing in the sound element, um, it surprises people. People don't necessarily expect that. And it creates a sense of wonder um, and a sense of familiarity as well, because it's water and mm, there are no words in it. Um, Maybe one recording has a couple of words, but it's very general and it's something familiar to all and and universal in a sense. So um, three different sculptures have streams of sound coming through them and they're they're each on a loop. So when they blend together, it's always different. And so that'll always be different as well uh, when you enter the space. But it's, it's about creating an environment more than objects that you're looking at. And in that way, it becomes a place of gathering to, to just be and then feel what you feel when you're in that space. Have you exhibited the sculptures without the sound? Yes, I have. Um, it's not as ideal because, it, it like you said, it, it takes that uh, sound element out. I mean, I convey what they are. I, in some places I can't do sound, it, it's just uh, the way it is. So I can think about it, but it's it's been really key for water to speak for itself. A lot more powerful than me speaking to water, speaking about itself. So, so I feel really honored to get, be able to give it a louder voice through this work. Now I understand that you've also, in addition to your visual art practice that you've also uh, become a deep listening instructor. Um, so it seems to be that even though you're, say, maybe categorized as a visual artist, but uh, sound plays a role in your thinking that that may not be uh, common among other visual artists. And and uh, you, you mentioned earlier that when you're beginning a piece, you're, you're listening to your maybe inner voice or listening to your inside. Um, maybe Maybe if you can expand a bit more about the connection of listening and drawing and expre- and visual expression. Yes, thank you. So yes, it's very much a process of listening. And you could say it's like an extra sensory listening in a way. It's not that I'm always using my ears. Um, and that's very much what the deep listening practice speaks to as well. So there's listening in dreams and there's 
listening through, yeah, listening internally. So that's not your ears per se, but it is a process of receiving and, and tuning and listening to that inner wisdom or voice. Um, yes, and so I, I'm not an artist who looks out into the landscape and sees what sees what's there and, and paints it or tries to make it the same. It's it's a different thing for me. So it it's it's it, you go deep. It's um, being in that quiet place, and that's very much the the same kind of place I'm wanting to offer with my art for people to to connect with themselves in. So it's a sculptural environment to to help allow that kind of connection where we can hear that inner voice. There are a lot of what they call squeaky wheels out there in the world. There's a lot going on. So the more we can be still and, and listen to all that there is to hear and, and without judging it and, and uh, take what we can from it. So in a sense, the experience of seeing the sculptures is a more of a context for reflection and meditation. So there's a kind of perhaps an invitation of time uh, for the viewer to spend with the work as opposed to sizing it up in uh, five seconds. Yes, that's exactly it. I call it a sanctuary of sorts. Um, yeah, it's it's like going into a forest and uh, just sitting by a creek, which is very much what this project began with. That that is the first recording I did was of the creek in the forest on the beautiful land where I live, um, and it's that kind of an experience I'm hoping to offer with the work. Something that's different. Not they're not objects uh, so much as a it's an environment. So you're you're moving through the space and uh it, it alters your consciousness really and also with this exhibition you've uh included a audience participation component uh an invitation for audience to share stories or make sounds perhaps vocally or to record sounds uh, even uh that suggest uh water or memories of water and uh, associated with water so uh, seaside places creeks whatever um, uh, maybe you can tell us a bit more about that part of water shadows um, is this and it changes when it moves from community to community um, i in the past have gathered uh, water offerings that have been drawings that are reflections of water and for this particular show at NASA, I have the good fortune of having um, an opportunity to collect sonic water offerings. So yes, um, the idea is that, that you listen to water around you again. Um, it can be in your own memory of water or a place that's special to you, all those things you said, and to reflect on what it means to you. It could even just be the name of a place. But the idea is to, to listen to water as it flows through your life and to hear what it, it might be saying and to celebrate it and reflect on it and yeah, to, to share it. And then it goes into the web water portal and collect it and it can be listened to and it may even go into future installations. That is a possibility as well. For you, it does uh, part of imagining the work involve making sound yourself 
that means that uh, the sound that we don't hear perhaps as the uh, audience but part of the thinking imagining process yes actually i do i do make sound i haven't uh shared those recordings in it yet but i do have places where i go uh in this forest that inspired the work to begin with um there's a a place where water bubbles up from the earth it feels very special um it almost feels like people on the land who lived here before used to go there as well it has has that feel so i i do make sound there um non-verbal sounding that's part of my practice yes and then i let that gel and then images come or ideas yes very much so is there a possible future of making sonic works only for you absolutely i could see that i could hear that see that hear that yes i'm open you're listening to making waves that was Julia White in conversation with me about her current exhibition at the NASA North Media Arts Centre in South River, and the exhibit is called Water Shadows. Details about that and also the upcoming performance by Laurel McDonald is uh, available at nasa.ca. And uh, before we get to my conversation with Laurel McDonald, I uh, thought we'd listen to uh, an audio clip of her performance with Phil Strong back in 2012 called Video Voce. This video is available on NASA's YouTube page called NASA Tube, and it's part of a developing anthology of performances celebrating NASA's 20th anniversary.
you seem to straddle two worlds between being a video artist and a singer and a composer. What what of those came first and and did it and did the other come out of the work of, of the other? It depends on if you're talking specifically about video art or or visual art. Um but if you sort of back it up a step and talk about visual art, then the two, the, the music side and the visual side really have pretty much developed side by side in my life uh, from pretty much from the get go, um, because I come from a, a family which is uh, very much visually art oriented. My dad's a painter and my, my uh, parents actually met at art school at NASCAD in Nova Scotia. And, uh, um, but music was always very central from the time I was a very young person as well. So the two really have developed kind of side by side and to the point where I, when I was, became sort of professionally more of a music specialist, I was finding initially that I was feeling like I was, um, ignoring that other side of my life and my other uh, side of my creative expressions. Probably for about the first eight years or so that I was uh, sort of specializing in music, I did that alone. And then at one point I decided that I needed to sort of go back and, and revisit and bring the visual element back into my work again. It felt like one was, they were both necessary to feel like a complete experience. Uh, level of expression for me. With the work that you did when we first got to know you, when we presented you back in 2012 and maybe even prior to that, um, that the music, that the video was had a kind of abstract language that where the imagery changed in time and was very connected to the music. Uh, and then a lot of, not all of the music had words, some of it did, but is it is the meaning of the work somewhere uh, in between words and images and, and the uh, emotional response to the music? The work that I'm doing now, my new work, is, is very much text-based, I guess you'd say, because I'm setting poetry. So there are more words actually in my work than there's been in quite a long time. Um, uh, that being said the poetry that I'm setting is fairly abstract and definitely open to a lot of interpretation. So that sort of lack of specificity is, uh, I feel very comfortable sort of working in that world and the visuals will hopefully be in that similar place. This collection is all... Uh, work by a woman who was an astronomer and a lot of the imagery is based on uh, her own research. She did a lot of work uh, with the um, the Hubble Space Telescope. So I'm looking for ways to express the uh, sort of the environment and the sort of atmospheric quality of sky and space imagery without getting too crazily direct with it. So it's it's definitely a, a bit of a, a tricky bit of business because that sort of imagery is also, you see that a lot 
in in uh, commercial imagery as well in video. So trying to find a, a way to go into that place without it looking like something that's been done a lot before. But at the same time, wanting to, to you know, honor and, and uh, retain that, uh, that feeling that, sh- that the poet is expressing in, with those words. So looking for that, that sort of sweet spot that's in there somewhere. Can you tell me about the poet? She uh, was a contemporary of mine. So I feel a certain amount of affinity with her on, on that front. She was, uh, her name is Rebecca Elson. And she was from Montreal. Um, I think she was born in 1960. And she uh, died very young. Um, she was diagnosed with uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma around age 29. And I think she passed away at age 39. Um, and so a lot of her professional life was also spent sort of staring down her own mortality. So while she was uh, highly accomplished as a, as a, you know, as a scientist, as an astronomer, she was living this, uh, this life where, you know, she was producing many, many scientific papers and, and working uh, at prestigious institutions on, on highly important projects, but had this other side of her life, which was, uh, uh, you know, very profound and, um, and very difficult. But she was, uh, I think, writing poetry from the time she was quite young. And then the output um, of the last, you know, maybe 15 years of her life was was published posthumously by her family. And uh, I became aware of that book and um, became, you know, very enamored of the the poetry itself, which is very beautiful. And did you hear the music and in a sense, and see images or get hints of these things when you first read it? Mm, not specifically, no. That came along later. Um, in fact, the first time I heard it, it was... Uh, I, I did actually literally hear it. I, I heard a spoken word um, presentation of one of her poems with musical accompaniment, um, So, which was not you know, necessarily the place that I would be taking the music at all. But, uh, but I, I guess I, I, you know, kind of was reading and rereading. And then finally, I, I, you know, actually bought the book and looked at everything in detail. And that's when the idea struck me that it would be an interesting project to try. What's the structure of the piece then that you're making? How, how long will it be? What does it consist of? don't know exactly how long it's going to be for this show uh, for at the moment it's about 35 minutes but it that it that might change because I'm just starting to work with Philip Strong and over the next few days and so his contribution as a sound designer may end up sort of opening up the whole thing quite a bit so that there might be quite a bit more space in between the sung sections that I'm working on directly myself so so what role does uh, Phil play in it does he is he as a sound designer as opposed to just a recording engineer or what is his role you know there's a lot that I can do while I'm performing um I'm I'm doing a lot of technical uh stuff from on stage but I can't really perform and make the 
all of the recordings that I'm creating while I'm performing sound really particularly well mixed for the audience. So that's one of his, you know, primary roles. But then another role, which is far more creative, I, I would say, is that he'll take snippets of my voice while I'm singing and while I'm recording on my own workstation on stage. He's also recording bits of my voice from his workstation, which is off stage. And then he'll take that and sort of, and remix it on the fly to sort of create um, sort of more sonic tapestries, which are very abstract. And they, they contrast, I think, very beautifully with the work that I'm doing, which is far more structured. So he'll tend to do things that are abstract and, and very free time and unpredictable and that will change with every show whereas the kind of thing that I'm doing almost entirely is is quite structured and that it, you know the performances will change from show to show but but the structure of the individual arrangements generally is consistent at least I intend it to be <laughs> and you're both working using Ableton Live is that right and that and in that environment yes. which is kind of made for DJs but you're applying it to a kind of vocal music that's, that's right. maybe more yes. pop-based, mm -hmm. I suppose. I don't know if it's that really correct to say that. Or, yeah, well, that's right. Well, kind of multi-genres, but I guess, but mm -hmm. a song-based. Uh, yeah. Um, well, Ableton Live is known as a sort of a, a DJ software, but it's very, very uh, flexible software, very, um, yeah, very sort of, a very broad base of things that you can do. And, and uh, unfortunately, to, to classify it as a, as a DJ software per se is, uh, um, yeah, it's, it's missing out on so much of the power of what it can do. Um, so, yeah, we, we use it in ways that both of us, we, we use the software very differently, Phil and I, but we both use it in ways that if you looked up a tutorial online on how to use Ableton Live, you probably wouldn't find any tutorials that would sh give you an idea of what we're doing. There seems to be a lot of uh, examples of singers working with looping mm -hmm. uh, and effects and over the well, uh, many th 30 years, I don't know, since, since, uh, since studio technology has become more readily adaptable to live performance context. How do you fit yourself in that landscape of people exploring that? Um, well, I have a background in um, very acoustic music, uh, really sort of started out more as a folk musician. So I, perhaps it would be fair to say that I'm approaching the technology from a much more acoustic perspective than um, perhaps other performers are. Um, although I, you know, at the same time, I, I get into areas where the, the sound creation is also purely electronic as well. Uh, so it's a real mix-up of things. But... Um, Actually, on this project, I'm kind of going full circle. And at one point in the set, I go back to a purely acoustic folk music kind of a sound, uh, like almost like a singer-songwriter kind of an, an approach on one of the pieces. So um, that might 
be sort of a somewhat uh, different perspective than than other musicians are taking with the whole sort of looping software world. Do you see it as a way of accompanying yourself or as a way of enhancing or expanding your voice? Definitely expanding and enhancing. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not straight accompaniment per se, not at all. Um, I'm very much dependent on the building up of of you know specific structural things that go on in the arrangements that the song wouldn't make sense i don't think without most of the songs wouldn't make sense without having that tool in place so is it the melody or the texture that drives an impetus to a song or piece uh the textures i i guess um the the underpinning of the textures, I, I think, probably does, and the melodies are essential as well. Um, but uh, I, you know, building up the the textures using you know the sort of uh, repeated uh, little motifs of you know of repeated phrases, that kind of thing, and building up harmony was all, which is also very central to my uh, sound is uh, is use is stacked harmonies. Um, and uh, and then interlocking rhythms often as well. So so working all those structural tools simultaneously, and then uh, usually singing a melodic uh, material on top of those underpinnings. Some of your music in the past has made me think of Renaissance music and other folk music from other uh, European. Is there uh, are there other reference points then for your style of writing? Yes, yes, certainly. Um, I would I would say that the the single most important influence probably at this point in my um, life is is likely Georgian singing, um, which is a very specifically polyphonic tradition where you know you get multiple parts that are um, very complex structural things going on between uh, usually three singers but they gets very very um, harmonically and rhythmically uh, complex and very very interesting and I would and I've sung Georgian music for almost 20 years now, I'm a, a member of a Georgian choir in Toronto. And uh, so I'm very familiar with that music, spent time in Georgia studying with uh, singers there as well. And um, so I would say probably, even though you may not hear specific influences with thing, harmonic or rhythmic influences in a specific way, but, but sort of the broader sort of um, aesthetic or or even philosophical approach, I think, would, is very strongly influenced by that. Is there a different area of the voice that Georgian music uses that than you would use in other cases? Mm. It's actually it's real folk singing. Um, so Georgian singing. So what do you mean uses, by real folk singing? As opposed to any. Um, influences from classical singing whatsoever. In fact, I, I think I'm correct in saying that Georgian 
folk singing never uses sort of what we call it in the singing world is the head voice. Um, that might be not, that might not be absolutely a hundred percent accurate, but it's, it's, it's kind of, it's guttural, it's throaty. It's, um, you know, it comes from a different place in the voice and it's kind of interesting to, to see the way that folk singers work in that tradition where there's no such thing, for instance, as a warm up. You know, nobody worries about anything. It's a it's a much more natural way of using the voice. It's not stretching technique in a way that a classical singer would do, for instance. It's different though than Bulgarian singing then. Yes, yes, it is. Because yeah. Bulgarian it, singing, I think of that as being in the head. Mm, yeah, they're very ch- very much channeling the sound into. I think it. The the term they use is the mask. So it's not as much a head voice as a sort of channeling the voice into the front of your kind of like your top of the so the top half of your face is kind of buzzing in Bulgarian singing yes Mm -hmm. yes okay Mm -hmm. yeah whereas Georgian it's based more in the in the uh, in the stomach I'd say more in the throat perhaps so you're now are you trying to apply that technique to your music or your or is it more the musical compositional aspect that it um, is influencing you well it would be i i don't think i'm actually using that technique of singing directly in this work it's that the technique would probably be more singer songwriter kind of a world i guess where it's um the the vocal technique favors the the delivery of text um, not entirely because I'm also doing sort of more sort of, um, non text based phrases that would, where I would go into, you know, just open vocal sounds and they would, I'd be working actually very high up in my voice. Uh, so sort of going into a, a very, very high range, which is definitely not a folk music style at all. So, um, so I'm playing with different singing styles for sure in my own work. I recall seeing the video from uh, the Women in Space Festival mm-hmm. uh, that was uh, called We Astronomers, I, I believe. Yes. So is mm-hmm. that a precursor to this piece? It is, yes, yes. This is the sort of the second iteration, I guess for lack of a better term, of, of this project. So also this show and that show, they, they were recorded to the camera uh, so they right, is that correct? Correct. So they're not in front of an audience. They're uh, you know pandemic recordings, if you will. Yes. Uh, um, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, how have you found that process as opposed to doing the pieces live in front of an audience? Is are there artistic liberties that you have this way that you wouldn't have in the live context? It's mostly a very solitary process making this music and the opportunities to do it in front of an audience are so rare that I would say that it's mostly informed by the fact that it is a very solitary process. Now, if I had more opportunities to take out, take it out in front of a live audience, it would be interesting to see how the music might change. Um, 
is very, it, it's so technology specific, and I don't know how much that might change in front of an audience. It would be, it would be very interesting to know that. But it is, you know, working in front of a video camera and performing in front of a video camera feels just like a very natural ex extension of what I'm doing all day, every day, which I have a gr the great, uh, the great good fortune to be able to do that. Um, but, you know, working all day in my studio alone, developing the work, and then, at, you know, at a certain point, I'll, you know, probably put up a black backdrop behind me and set up a couple of lights and a video camera, but it's really not taking it into a very different place. You know, I try and make it more performative at that point, uh, but there's only so much you can do when you're performing to a camera. Uh, so, yeah. so in a sense, the audience is getting a sense of what it is that you do to record your music, to produce it, as opposed to perform it. Very much so. Have you found that with other people's, uh, you know, Zoom performances and things like that and other things that have popped up in online is that you're getting insight into how this person records music? more than how they perform? What I get with a lot of that, those sorts of experiences when I watch other people's concerts online is a greater sense of intimacy because it is kind of like it's me in that room with that person who's performing and I've got a front row seat. And uh, maybe I, I'm not, maybe there is nobody else in the room, no other audience members. Often it does feel that way. So I do and sometimes you can look you can see them in a lot of detail that you of course wouldn't be able to on stage so arguably despite the fact that you're separated by all this crazy technology but it may provide a type of intimacy that you won't get which it's a very different experience i guess isn't it than than the um the performance in the, the room with the, the big audience is just, it's just very different. And they both have their, um, their advantages and disadvantages, I suppose. And you, you mentioned, you were talking about how the music would change in front of an audience is, is, uh, I mean, even though with Ableton Live, you can take what you do in the studio and bring it on the stage quite easily. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but is it the, presence of the audience that affects uh your things like timing and decisions that happen on the fly is that is that I, the, the difference or yeah i think so um when you're working material out in front of a live audience then you once especially once you get really comfortable with the material when you know it really well you start taking more risks and probably getting freer with the rhythm, like you can start moving things around more. Um, yeah, prob more of an improvisational um, element probably can can sort of um, ha start happening. And I guess really, as one becomes more and more comfortable with the technology, I mean, I'm pretty comfortable with the t technology, but but there's still, you know, there's a level of uh, comfort that you can always improve. Um, and 
so, and especially when you're on stage and you've got, you know, the focus, you need to focus toward the audience, but you also need to be operating, you know, faders and, and uh, um, triggering clips and so on. And you have to be extremely good at that to, to pull it off. And so I would guess that the more and more, the more time you spend doing that kind of focused work and having, working with the audience in front of you, the more time you spend with that kind of split focus, the better you're going to get at it. Um, it's a, it's pretty interesting to, to see what happens with the technology when, when something goes wrong on stage and you're, you know, you're, busy singing a phrase and trying to get the timing and the tuning and everything right and something's just gone wrong with the technology so simultaneously you know you're kind of <laughs> trying to make compensating co compensatory moves on the uh, in the software and it gets to be pretty interesting at times yeah that would be hairy <laughs> <laughs> it can be a bit <laughs> i think one other aspect is uh maybe that one last thing maybe the cover is uh on the show we'll be sharing with the audience a clip of your performance from 2012 of video voce mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. how is the music and the visual language and that how is it developed in this whatever it's been eight eight uh nine mm -hmm. years since then mm -hmm. uh where are you now that you weren't you weren't then. Well, I feel that this work is much more focused. Uh, it has a, well, it does have a single thematic focus. And that's really a gift that I'm, I'm taking from this, you know, from this poet, from her poetry, is um, creating a, a sense of, of a focused story um, that I don't think I've had in the same, I, I'm sure I haven't had in, in the same way in my work before. So that's the, definitely the, the big, ch biggest change, I think, for me. I think it's also, I feel that the, the music is, is stronger uh, as, as compositions, I feel that the the work is is stronger than it's than it's ever been, and it is definitely going in a different stylistic direction. I would I would say that it's more going in a pop direction. There's a there are a lot of um, catchy melodies, um, and uh, I hope I it's the pop music if you can use that word to describe it. Um, it it's uh, it's that in the best possible way i hope you know as opposed to um a, you know a, a commercial kind of uh, an approach but um but i am i've always loved pop music well written pop music um i love it i love catchy melodies i love strong rhythmic motifs um and uh and the, and i love the kind of structure that's usually used in pop music um an example that actually might be um, sort of an, an interesting um, uh, comparison would be something like uh, Supreme's Motown 1960s music or the Beach Boys, like the, this very strong vocal music that is very uh, built up very much on harmony, very much on strong rhythms. 
strong melodies and super catchy and you know powerful and gorgeous that's definitely a strong um inspiration for me right now probably this has been making waves and that was uh, laurel mcdonald in conversation with me darren copeland thank you for joining us laurel mcdonald's performance on november 6th can be experienced online at 7 p.m eastern to acquire access go to nasa.ca n-a-i-s-a dot c-a to take us out to the end of the show, uh, here is more music from Laurel McDonald. This is from her recent performance called We Astronomers, which is also based on um, poetry from Rebecca Elson. This is kind of an earlier incarnation of uh, the uh, upcoming show I Eat the Stars, but this one is from the Women from Space Festival back in March 2021. They say we have from a long night of magic, from a long dream of gravy, they say we have woken. They say we. Oh,
Stop.